0: The following Bible study is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. For more studies and information, go to graceteaching.net. And now, here's our Bible study. Let's uh, have a word of prayer and we will look into God's Word our Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the time that you give us together. We are thankful for the freedom. And we're thankful that uh, even before Luther sat down and, and uh, um, led people in a, in a clear, broader uh, recognition that salvation is completely and solely by your grace, your faith, we realize that there are believers all through the history of the church uh, in places that have held to that. Uh, that have recognized that it is only by faith in your Son Jesus Christ and apart from works. Uh, but we are thankful. We're thankful for the broader uh, proclamation of that, and uh, we just we pray for brothers and sisters in Christ in many places, and some of them appreciate that uh, in in ways that uh, uh, maybe even sadly we don't recognize because maybe they've come out of that heavy work system and they are so relieved to find the freedom that comes in realizing that we are saved solely by faith uh, in your son Jesus Christ and because of your grace apart from any works that we might do. And so we uh, would just ask that you'd help us as believers as we look at your word today to be able to think about this more and more, to recognize um, what you uh, have given to us and to look at this promise that you have made uh, to uh, Abraham, and how it affects us. And we would thank you for this then. Amen. Okay. Yes. It's just because it's quiet in here. I always think it's loud like that myself. But. Okay. Well, I don't know how to do anything about that. Sorry. Um, maybe it's going to blow up in the middle of service. So. Wouldn't that be spectacular? <laughs> Is it coming up? Hmm. There it goes. Okay. I've got to back up here. I usually have this all done ahead of time, and I forgot to put it in the right place. So we're looking today, we're continuing looking at our study on God's covenants. We are looking at the fact that God's made four covenants with Abraham. A covenant is, in simple terms, it's a contract. Covenant is a contract, okay? And it's a contract that always, and this happens with contracts, a contract always involves parties, okay? That wasn't what I was looking for, but that's true, it does involve parties. That's one of the things we looked at. But you also have promises, okay? A contract involves a promise or promises. And we've been looking at the fact that God made four covenants with Abraham. And the first three covenants were in Genesis 15, land to Abraham and his descendants, or to his descendants. In Genesis 17, another piece of land. And both of those were unconditional. There was absolutely nothing Abraham could do to get those covenants. God promised them to him, and they rested so, that rested solely on Abraham's shoulders. And, on God's shoulders, yeah. No, I just contradicted myself almost back to back. And then... And then the last covenant was a covenant of circumcision, which said which people got to be part of Abraham's family. And uh, so that established that. Now we move today to Genesis 22, and we're going to have a covenant that we're going to find in Genesis 22. And I want you to open your Bibles. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1. Now Genesis 17, Genesis 17... (coughs) When God made the last set of, the last set of covenants, Abraham was 99. And at the end of Genesis or in Genesis chapter 21, not at the end, but in Genesis chapter 21, uh, which we're not going to, but Abraham and Isaac, or excuse me, Abraham and Sarah have a son and Sarah bears a son to him and Abraham's hundred years old in Genesis 21. So they have a baby. Now, we're going to fast forward here to Genesis 22, and we don't know how much time has passed between Genesis 21 and 22, but some time has passed, and you're going to see why, okay? I have a grandson. He's almost a year old, and at a year old, he's not yet articulate. He can do a really good, blah, 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 and blah, 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 but he cannot articulate. I haven't even heard him say mama or daddy yet, okay? And... This is going to be important for what we're going to read here. Keep this in mind. So look at verse 1, follow along, Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things, and this is after a dispute that Abraham had with some Philistines about a well and uh, and uh, their their um, livestock, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son. Now, by the way, is Isaac Abraham's only son? No. He has a son by the name of Ishmael that is 13 years older than Isaac. Okay? And so, actually, a little little bit more than that, but he's at least 13 years older than Isaac. Isaac is only son, and, and Paul uses that same language in Hebrews 11 because Isaac is the son of promise. He's the special son, and that really... Uh, when you get them to the New Testament, that word that's translated only begotten son that we have, like in John three sixteen, that word doesn't mean only begotten as it's the only one. It means the one that's special is literally what that term means in the Greek. This is Hebrew over here and he says, so your one son, meaning special in this case, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Okay, I'm going to pick on kale. Picked on him last week. What would you think if God came to your dad and said, hey, take kale, go up top of Saddle Mountain, and you're going to offer him as an offering? A burnt offering. A a burnt offering. Yeah, I I would think so. Isaac doesn't know this, by the way. The son doesn't know that this is what God's God's doing. And there's one other thing to, to add in here that I think is really important that you and I do not appreciate very much. I never appreciated this. I always thought, this is crazy that God would ask Abraham to do this as a test and that Abraham went, just went along with it. And that's not the main thing. But they lived in a culture that you and I do not understand. In their culture where they lived, among the Baal worshipers, it was normal for, for those people to offer their children as offerings to get stuff from God. And it's, in fact, especially your firstborn son. In fact, there was a North African king that it said that he had almost 700 boys sacrificed so that he did not have to sacrifice his firstborn son. You and I just don't appreciate that at all. How can you appreciate that? That's a horrible thing. It's horrible. But that's the culture they lived in. So now when Abraham's God comes along and asks Abraham to do this, Abraham doesn't bat an eye. This is kind of crazy. If you go over to Hebrews 11, by the way, which we're not going to go there today because it's not the main part of our study, tells us over there, Abraham had faith in God that he knew Isaac was so much the son of promise that he even knew that God would raise Isaac back up from the dead. That's how confident he was that Isaac was. Well, think about it. Look how old Sarah was and how old Abraham was when they had Isaac. It was, he, would, I, he knew Isaac was a special and unusual child in that way. Special and unusual in a good sense. Mind you. So it goes on from here. Verse 3, And Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. That word young men is important here. In the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word na'er. Asher would be a Na'er. Ka'er would be a Na'er. So on and so forth. You get the idea? Okay. We're talking about anywhere from about seven years old on up into your teens. That was normally what Na'er referred to. Although, I do have, I did make, I have a note in my Bible. There is a place where Na'er is also applied to Moses as an infant in that reed basket. Covered with pitch that they put him in, and yet he's an infant. He's not an infant big enough to even crawl out of the reed basket. Okay. My nephew, or my nephew, my grandson, that is almost a year, we found out you can't just put him in his wagon anymore and walk with him behind you because he now knows how to crawl and he'll climb. He tried to climb right out of that thing. Well, they didn't put Moses in this basket and think, well, he can't crawl out of there, because he could or that he could because he was small enough, too young to actually crawl out of that thing. So Na'er is even used of him, but it's not the normal word for a little child like that. Nahar is normally used for a young man, which it says here, the young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering, rose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from the distance, and Abraham said to his young men, those two young men that he took along with him, Stay here with the donkey and the lad. Now that's misleading because that's the same word na'er that's used of the two young men that came along with Abraham and Isaac. It's exactly the same Hebrew word. So when they translate it lad, they're actually kind of, I think that's misleading in this context. So the lad and I, or the young man and I will go yonder and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, took his hand and the fire and the knife, and so the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke. Now, my grandson, I told you, he's not articulate. He can't speak yet. And even my granddaughter, although she's at four, she's, she picks up on more and more stuff. There's things that, that she recognizes and realizes, oh, wait a second, we do this, so that means we do this, and that means we do this. But Isaac is old enough that he says to his father... He says, Father, and he says, here I am. And he said, look, there's fire and there's wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, this is actually pretty decent reasoning, isn't it? Again, that tells me he's not two years old. He's not three years old. I don't even know if he's four or five, although maybe a four or five-year-old would put all this together. I'm, personally, I'm thinking Isaac, I'm just, I'm, and I'm, purely throwing a dart out at this one because we don't know. It doesn't tell us except that it uses the same word of these other young men. Let's say Isaac is 10. Okay, let's say he's 10. But we don't know that. Maybe he's only seven. But he's old enough that he actually can reason through this with his dad. In verse 8, And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Now the, the importance of kind of recognizing that Isaac is not a little baby is that some time has passed between the time that he was born when Abraham was 100 years old and enough time has passed now that he has a child that can walk on his own, that can actually carry a bundle of sticks with him that he's going to use. That takes a little bit of strength. Again, that tells me he's not four or five. Four or five-year-old could carry a bundle of sticks like that maybe, but like enough for an offering? That'd be bigger? You're looking at probably, that's what I'm saying, maybe 10? We don't know, but... Do that, And then to reason this, so some time has passed. We're looking at maybe 10 or 11 years have passed since the last covenant interaction with God. And God is going to talk with him here in this context. So we're just kind of put, putting this into place in terms of what is happening here. And so as we said, Isaac's old enough to ask his father about the sacrifice. So he goes down there, and let's continue reading, and it says, And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Verse 9, Then they came to the place in which God told them, and Abraham built the altar there, arranged the wood. I was getting amazed at this one. Found his son Isaac. I'm just thinking, boy, if I were the boy and you were tying me up, I'd go, what's going on? Anyway, but that's aside. And laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the, the young man and do nothing to him, for I now know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, or this one son. And Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, there was a ram caught in the thicket of, of by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And then the angel of the Lord. Now who's the angel of the Lord? We've talked about this in other studies. It's God the Son. This is who knew is, Jesus Christ. He's always the one. He's not an angel. Literally, this term angel Lord means the messenger who is the Lord or the messenger who is Jehovah. So he's the God. Most of the time when God shows up and talks in the Old Testament, it's almost always God the Son. Because the New Testament tells us that. He's the one that showed up. The Father wasn't showing up. It was the Son that said it was showing up. He was the one that was speaking on behalf of God. And so the angel of the Lord appears unto him uh, in verse 15 and called Abraham a second time and he says, by myself I have sworn to as the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of, I love the New American Standard Bible, except right here is one of those places where they translate this, their enemies, and it is not their enemies, it is a singular pronoun in Hebrew, his enemies. We're gonna make a big deal about that here in just a little bit. So first of all, he swore it by an oath, promised to multiply Abraham's seed, and he promised the seed would defeat his enemies in here. Now this is not called a covenant in here. It is sworn, but I wanna look at a couple passages where it is called a covenant. And I want you to look over in Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one, this is Zacharias, the father of John the baptizer. And in Luke chapter one, Let's look at verse 72. This is in the middle of a um, middle of a, a long oration that this uh, uh, John the Baptizer's father says, and that um, and I have down verse 72. But we need to go back in there. Let's, let's go back up to verse 68 and pick this up. And it says, "Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, who has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people, and He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David His servant." Because Jesus Christ was going to come from the house of David. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who ate us. There's two things that are stated in here. To show mercy toward our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So he says here, that this was the covenant God made that he swore with an oath. This is the only covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis that he swore with an oath. He does not swear any of the others with an oath, only this one. And he says, by myself I have sworn. Secondly, it says in here that it involves a covenant in which he is going to save them. They're going to be rescued from the hand of their enemies, or from their enemies. Now, that's not a quotation, but it's a reference in here. And this is the only one of the four covenants that God makes with Abraham in which he promises them, promises Abraham, that his seed, his descendant, would be, or would possess the gate of his enemy. We're going to look at, that's going to be a really big deal because you and I are going to come into this before this is over, which is going to be an amazing thing. To see this. I also want us to look uh, while we're here. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. The writer of Hebrews, who I think is the Apostle Paul, but it doesn't give us a, tell us who it is, so we're not going to fuss over it too much. But in Hebrews 6, the writer tells us, he's telling these people that they need some patience. You guys need patience, he says. So that you guys will inherit these promises because you guys want to give up. And he says, you need not to do this. For when God, verse 13, Hebrews 6.13, for when God made promise to Abraham, since he couldn't swear by anybody greater. Why? Because there is nobody greater than God. There is only one God. There's not many gods. There is but one God, period. And anybody that tells you otherwise, whether you go down to the islands where Josh and Fay live and they believe in lots of gods or around the world, or you talk with Mormons and they think that there is a myriad of gods, they're wrong. They're contradicting the word of God. The word of God says there is but one true and living God. And it says that God, because he couldn't swear by anybody greater, he swore by himself. And he says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. So he swears this oath, which we have over in Genesis 22, that your seed will be multiplied. He swears this to Abraham. Now there's one last place I want to look at this, and that's over in Psalm 105. On our way back, we'll stop at Psalm 105. Psalm 105, let's go to verse 8. And it says, He has remembered His covenant forever. This is verse 8, Psalm 105, 8. He has, re- he has remembered His covenant forever, the word which He commanded to a thousand generations. And then... Some of your Bibles have covenant in there uh, and some of your your Bibles do not, but it, we have a, a basis for talking about this. The one that he made with Abraham, his oath then to Isaac. So what he's saying is, uh, well, let's continue verse 10. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute. So Jacob gets a reiteration. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. Isaac is his son. So his son comes along. He says, still, still good. Jacob comes along. We're still good. This covenant still is good for you. It is. To Israel, it is an everlasting covenant. This is a covenant that doesn't change, continuing. But as he's talking about that covenant here, he says he does say that it's one that God made to Abraham, and it's one that he swore with an oath, and it tells us that in verse 9. So this covenant, not called a covenant in Genesis 22, but Zacharias calls it a covenant, And the psalmist here, in Psalm 105, he refers to his covenant. So it's called a covenant twice, and then it's also referred to in Hebrews 5, not as a covenant, but as something that God swore. So let's go back over to Genesis chapter 22, and let's look at the next part of this, the next issue in this this covenant that he made. The next issue, and this is very important for us, because Paul is going to make a very big deal out of this. And this is... Where you and I come in, if we understand then what Paul tells us. He says in verse 16, Genesis 22 16, and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed. Now, the word seed is, and I, I probably should go and check this in the Hebrew, but every time I look at it, it's always singular. But it's a collective singular. My grandfather farmed for many years, probably 50-plus years, and my grandfather would have to buy seed, and my grandfather never said, I'm going out to buy seeds. (sighs) He says, I buy seed, and yet if you went in his upstairs hallway, he'd have all of his pioneer seed corn in bags that he'd get from, from from the seed corn dealer, and he'd have several bags of those all lined up down the hall, upstairs in his upstairs hallway. There were more than one seed. There's a whole bunch of seeds, <laughs> kernels of corn, but you don't say it. It's a collective singular, right? We, we all get that. We have Stan and Linda, our master gardeners here in the church, they 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 go out. They planted big gardens over the years, and they put in lots of seeds in their garden. But I doubt very often that they say we went and bought seeds this week. They're going to say seed. And you all know what they meant. They didn't go out by one, and They're going to plant one seed in their garden. They have a whole bunch of them for a whole bunch of different crops. So it's a collective singular, even in Hebrew. Uh, collective singular. So when you look at this word seed, I think we understand it. A lot of your English Bibles today translate it descendants. And we have to put descendants in plural because descendant of itself is not a collective plural. Okay. Just say if you say descendant, you most people would say you're talking about one person. So if you say descendants, we understand you're talking about more. So I'm going to multiply your seed. Now, obviously, even though it's a sing, the word seed is singular, he uses the word multiply. So it means a lot. Like the stars of heaven, like the sand that is on the seashore. And your seed, again, still singular, of course, by its nature, shall possess the gates of, and because the seed is multiplied. The New American Standard translators have come along, and they've taken this next word, which in English it says "their enemies." There is literally one letter that's attached to the word "enemy," because this is the way you write in Hebrew. There's one letter at the end that tells you that it's we're talking about a a singular person, his enemies. Just hold on, and you. You may not get into the next part of this, but I I remember the first time I did this study on my own, looking, going through this stuff, it just amazed me, really amazed me how clear this, this all was. So possess the gates of his enemies. I would cross out, I would draw a line through the word there, if you haven't already done it, and put in the word his enemies. It's a very big deal for Paul. And in your seed, again singular, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So we have this idea, the seed. We're going to go over to Galatians 3 in just a little bit, and we're going to see that Paul makes a big deal about this. But in the meantime, I want to look at this word zare and its relationship to some other places that it occurs with Paul and see how this collective singular is used with other pronouns. So let's, right here, we, as we've already talked about, let me see if I can get up here and point this out. This is our, this is our, our, this is our verb, Yaresh. The Hebrew word Yaresh is, is singular, and it means he's going to possess. He will possess. If you wanted to say they will possess, you use this form. You add this letter, this yo on the front, and this wow on the end, and that tells you now you're talking about a plurality of peoples. This would be they will possess. And there's an example of that. I don't know if I put the example on here over in Numbers 27. You can go look at it uh, if you want to see an example of that and pull it up on a Hebrew Bible or something that, that you can have access to online and you can see this word, okay? Same thing when we have his enemies. Here's the word enemy, okay? And this wow, this this, this is the pronoun. This is his enemies. If you wanted to say plural enemies, which we do have examples of it, it's, Abihem, it's not, it's, it's not it's Abihem, see, this hem ending is plural, their enemies, and we have examples of their enemies in scripture, okay, um, some others, and you can look at these, i I've got them on here, I'm just going to go over them up here, I'm not going to have you turn them back and forth in your Bibles, but if we went back to Genesis 15, the first covenant God makes with Abraham in there. And I'm just going to kind of put in real quickly at this. It says that they are going to go and they're going to be captives in a land that is not theirs. And it's lahem, literally the Hebrew. It is not for them. Okay? It's not a land for them. And they will enslave them. And so it's we have this form of this word abad, to enslave. But they will enslave. And we have this plural ending, them. Okay? In that case... And they will oppress them, and then this is the sign of the direct object. We have the word oppress, sign of the direct object, and then again, this same meme that tells us them, those guys. I hope this doesn't bore you. This kind of stuff, even though it maybe makes your head spin, to me this is interesting. This is what I call God's cool factor, because it's just like God told us one seed, and you know what, when you go back and compare it to the other ones, yeah, seed's always singular because that's the nature of the word, but the pronouns he uses in the other places are all plural. There's only one place that we have a singular pronoun. So that's why I just looked at this. First time I went through and did this, I was like, wow, this is really amazing. It says, and they will return, and we have the word shuv, and we have, I've underlined these here. They're underlined, on, I think, on your outline too, but the, the, the uh, yod and the wow. That's they, they will shoo, they will return. Uh, And those are all over there in Genesis 15. In Genesis 17, we have their generations, the duothem, okay? Their generations, and I will be a God, lahem, we've already seen a lahem, to them or for them. And you shall guard, and we have, this is uh, uh, in Hebrew, just like in Greek, you have a singular you, and a plural you. They're like Texans. Texans are talk to Dwight, I'd say you. If are talking to everybody properly, it'd be y'all. Okay? It's not you all, it's y'all. They're just gonna drop everything else out in there. And the and the Hebrews and the Greeks, they did the same thing. So we have shamair, the word guard, and we have the, the indications here with the with the tau and the wow that's telling you this is you, plural. Are gonna guard, okay? And with, and then he goes between this is Yabin here, between, and then we have the plural you again, and you shall be circumcised. And we have the word uh here, the mule, and this is doesn't, doesn't make any difference what this is telling you, but this is Tim. This is again you, okay. I've caught up in too many details, sorry. Uh, and then we have in your foreskin, and we have again you, okay. So you, and we have plurals. Okay, we have plurals. We don't have singulars. The only time we have singulars is when God talks to Abraham. But the minute he talks about the seed, even though the word seed is singular, he actually uses plural pronouns to talk about the seed in these places. Now, this is why this is all important. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. If that last part was confusing, I can talk to you about it later or just pass it by for the time being and come back to it, but I want you to get this. This is the thing I really want you to understand about this particular covenant that God makes. Galatians chapter 3, let's go to verse 15. One of our key verses on the covenant, Galatians 3.15, brethren, I speak in terms of of humans or people, even though it is a man's covenant or a human covenant, yet once it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. We've talked about that. Once you make a contract, you go to the, a car dealer in Moses Lake and you sign on the paper saying, I will make these payments every month to buy this car. The car dealer doesn't come back and say, hey, guess what? You're going to pay an extra $100 a month. We just decided that. When? Well, give me your contract. I'm going to just go write it in on the bottom. They don't do that. You've signed your name on that. They don't change the condition. And you don't go back to them and go, you know what? I decided I paid enough on the car. We're good. I'm just going to throw the covenant away, the contract away. You don't do that either. They're going to come and they're going to repossess your car eventually. See? So once you have a contract or a covenant, you don't set it aside, but you don't add to it. And that is very important in the nature of these covenants that God doesn't change these. So when he had a covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis 15, and two covenants he made in Genesis 17, Genesis 22 is not an addition to these covenants. Each one of them is a separate contract that God's making with Abraham. So, if we look then in verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And he does not say, and to seeds. Well, he never does because seed is always singular. As of many, but of one, that is to your seed that is Christ. In other words, he says, he's talking about one seed, one descendant, Christ. If you didn't have Galatians 3 and you read Genesis 22 and you did the work I did, you'd come up and you'd go, why is this singular and all the rest of them plural? And you wouldn't know. But what you would, but what you would probably assume is oh, this is still Israel. You'd probably make that assumption. But he's actually talking about a singular seed. But wait a second! Didn't he say over there in Genesis uh, chapter twenty-two that I'm going to multiply your seed? How does he multiply that seed? How does he actually accomplish that? Let's look down here in this context. Let's go down to um, let's go down to verse twenty-five. Verse 26, he says, for you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus through faith. That is, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, that he was buried and rose again, that's all you have to do. That's all you have to do. You can do that sitting right where you are say, yeah, he did that for me. It's done. It's settled. He did everything. There's nothing else for me to do. If you believe that, then according to this, by faith, you're a son of God and you are in You are in Christ. We've spent lots of times talking about being in Christ, what God says about that. For you were all baptized into Christ. That has no water there. This is something that happens the minute you you believe. We've looked at that too, that the Holy Spirit in that immediate moment puts us into Christ. That's literally all that word baptized means, is to put into. We were put into Christ Jesus, and we've clothed ourselves then with Christ because we're in him. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So there's a lot of us that have believed around the world. And in the 2,000 years that the church has been on the world, there's been a lot of people that have gone before us, right? We mentioned Luther, and we talked about Reformation Day, and think of all the people that actually heard about salvation by faith alone, apart from works. You go into tons of churches today around the world, and you're going to have people that are being told that the only way to have eternal life is to do good works. you got to be good. you got to do good works. The Bible says it's by faith alone. And there have been people in the 2,000 years of the church, many, many people, countless people, that have come to that that saving faith in Christ, seeing that from the Word of God or hearing somebody tell them this, they realize it's by faith alone. And so there's many of us, millions of Christians, who are, from God's perspective, are all in Christ, and in Christ we are all, what's the word? One. We're all one in Christ. So then he says in verse 29, and if you then are Christ's, here it is, then you are Abraham's offspring, or Abraham's seed, or his descendants, heirs according to a promise. He made a promise to Abraham. He says that you and I are heirs of. Now, I'm not a promise. I'm not an heir of the promise in Genesis 15 where he promised me some of that land over there or the promise in Genesis 17 where he promised Abraham and his seed a different set of land. I'm heir of the promise in which he said, we're going to be part of a seed that's multiplied and yet in some way one." How is it that? Because there's many of us, but all of us together in Christ make up one body of Christ. And we're heirs of a promise that he made in there. And that promise is that we're going to possess the gate of our enemies. Now, again, that's language we don't use a lot today. Because when you come up to Royal City or Moses Lake or Seattle, you don't find a city that's surrounded by a big wall. And it has guards that are stationed there day and night. And they've got big, massive, heavy doors that if they see raiding parties come, everybody grabs their livestock, runs off their farms, runs in the city, and they slam the doors shut, and they hold off until the raiding parties live. We don't have that, do we? Is that the way we operate? No. We live in a, well hopefully a little bit more civil society. I don't know about that, but a little bit more civil society where we're not struggling with this. People raiding parties come. But to control the gate of your enemies meant that your enemies could not keep you out of their city. They had no control over you. They lost their power. To possess the gate of your enemy meant you now were in power and in control rather than they being in control and in power. Now, with that then, I want to ask, can you think of some things that the Bible actually says are enemies that Jesus Christ has dealt with? I've got three. There's death. There's the sting of death, which is the sin. And I think I have one more. Oh, I didn't put it up here. It's also the law in this. So let's go over to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm not going to go over to Hebrews 2 today, but Hebrews 2 is a good passage to compare this with because you know how many people there are today that live their lives. Christians, Christians, people that are believers in Christ, that live their lives in fear of death. They live their lives in fear of death. And you as a believer should not fear death. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, to die and go to be with him is much better. And we always say that, right? When a person, after they're gone, we always say, oh, they've gone to a better place. But if you ask the person, do you want to die and go join them? They go, no, 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 (laughs) no. They don't really, which means we don't really believe it's a better place. Jim's talking to us about faith, uh, has been leading into that. And that's one of those promises that Christians don't believe. We don't really believe it is better. Now, by the way, you don't choose when you go. That's God's business. That's not for you. To, you're, to, you're to be here and do what God wants until God says it's time to come home. But when he tells you to, it's time to come home, you don't go kicking and screaming. You don't grab on everything in this world and fight for every last breath that you can muster. You just say, God, I'm ready. This is when you want to take me. We go. And that's where it's going to be anyway. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look with me at verse verse 25. It's talking about Christ reigning in the future, and it says, He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death is an enemy. So God, death was not... I mean, in God's overall plan, yeah, He fit death into the system, but death is not what he designed for Adam and Eve in the garden. Death was a consequence of Adam and Eve sinning, of their disobedience, but it wasn't part of what God designed. And so death is an enemy and it's the last enemy that he will defeat. And look down in the end of this chapter because we're like, well, then do we got to wait for that sweet by and by out there? Do we got to wait for him to reign to finally get rid of death? Well, permanently, yes. But I want us to see Um, Let's go down to, uh, let's just read all of this. Let's go to verse 50. Now I say then, brother, and flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does this perishable inherit imperishability. I'm going to tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep. That is, we're not all going to die. But we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of eye, at the last trumpet, for a trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. He's talking about the dead believers, not everybody. Dead believers... Uh, and this mortal is going to put on immortality. So when this perishable is put on imperishability and this mortal is put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, turn my page, death is swallowed up by victory. There's a day. De- you and I live with the prospect that if we do die, that Christ is going to call us all up and we're going to be raised in a body that will no longer be subject to death. A body that's not going to break down. My body's breaking down right now. Anybody else feel like that? Your body's breaking down. I know. I know you are, because I know some of you. We're praying for you because you've got problems and things you're dealing with physically that are not that are not comfortable or hamper your quality of life. He says, "This death is going to be swallowed up in victory." Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Remember, he said in, earlier in this chapter, death is, the, is an enemy. But he says, Christ is going to take care of it. And he he says, you as a believer can look at death and say, where's your sting, death? You don't scare me anymore. If God wants me to go, I go. And you can have that kind of an attitude. It's the sting of death is gone. And then he goes on, he says in verse 56, and the sting of death is literally in the Greek, the sin, which is a reference to the sin nature. As long as you're going around in this body that's dying, you've got the... Remember, we talked about this earlier. You're carrying around the old stinking sin nature. And it's a frustration. Because it wants things that you're going to go, I don't want to do that. Your sin nature goes, yeah, yeah, you do. No, I don't. Yeah, yeah, we do. And you're going to find yourself doing stuff that in reality you say, I don't really want to do that. That's not really what I want to do. And your body, your, your flesh craves these things. And it's because of, he says, because of the sin nature. The, the sting of death is the sin nature, and the power of that sin nature is the law. So even the law is a hostile problem in this matter. It feeds on these things. <clears throat> now we talk about death. How was that promise made over in Genesis 22? It says, and your seed will possess the, what does it say? Do you remember Genesis 22? It, what? The gates. The gates of his enemies. Does anybody think of it? death-related passage that uses the word gates. It's actually a real popular one that a lot of people know and don't understand. Matthew chapter 16. Turn to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. Let me ask you a question. Does Satan go down to hell every day? Does he go down? Does Satan have a desk in hell? Does he have an office down there? Does he have a big map of the world, and he's sending his demons out to take care of it? And it's all down there in hell. If you were, if you were like me, you grew up. Some, semi- every, any of you ever remember the little black and white chick tracks? I think they've had like one color, black, white, and then red in there. You remember those? They were little flat ones, and boy, they'd show the devil, and he'd be sitting at an office desk down there in hell, and he's commanding his demons, and he's directing people like to throw more brimstone on the people that are burning down there. Satan's not there. Hell is a place of punishment for Satan. It is not his base of operation. He does not go down to hell. He's not there yet. In fact, when he's punished in the future, he's going to be bound and sent down there for a period of time. So notice this in John 16. This is the way... Let me me read this, first of all, the way lots of Christians read this. John 16, Matthew 16. Matthew 16. You all Matthew 16? Good, because I misstated. Thank you, Peggy. Matthew 16... And uh, verse 17, And Jesus answered and said to him, uh, Blessed or happy are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood isn't revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And I also say that you are Petros, this little piece of rock, and upon this bigger rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, the way most people read that is, and Satan and his demons can't overpower the church. Sound like Josh Fanning the way I just said that, didn't I? But that's not what he means when he says the gates of hell will not overpower. Literally, what he means is the gates of Hades will not lock the church in. When we die, do you know where we go immediately? We immediately go to heaven. Scripture tells us that. Paul even tells us that. He tells us that the absent from the body is to be present facing the Lord. But where do people in the Old Testament have to go? They went to Hades. They had to wait. Now, Hades wasn't bad for believers in the Old Testament, but it wasn't heaven yet. They went down there, and the gates of Hades locked them in. A lot of Christians don't understand that. In other words, and that's one of the reasons that, according to Hebrews 2, when Christ died and rose again, he released you and I from the fear of death. We don't need to fear death anymore. Because he is the one that controls the gates of that. In fact, we have verses that tell us that Jesus Christ even holds the keys of death and Hades. Tells that over in the book of Revelation. He's the one that controls this. So we don't need to fear this anymore. We die. We go directly to be with Him. And we look for the prospect of being resurrected if we should happen to die. So death is not a thing that causes fear. And that was one of our enemies. And then as long as we're rambling about in these... mm, These bodies that aren't so great, we also are carrying around that sin nature, which makes it even worse. I think sometimes your sin nature is one of the things that can make some Christians fear death, because we're thinking, well, what if I die when I'm sinning it up? And there are Christians that don't understand their salvation and think, well, if I'm sinning it up when I die, maybe I am going to have to get punished. Maybe I'm going to have to get beat up, or maybe I won't get to go to heaven. And that's all a lie, by the way. Now I want to look at another thing with respect to this because the seed, not only is the seed control the gates of the enemies which means you and I don't fear death anymore. Number two, you and I don't have to fear or we don't have to we don't have to struggle with our sin nature as Jim was kind of talking about. We don't have to. I actually can rest at the fact that the Father says I'm always one that has died to the sin nature in Christ and have been raised. And I can actually experience victory. And Jim made this comment last week. And I got up and I chimed in. Because seriously, I've known the Christian life for a lot of years. But every time I do that, I always stand amazed go, Wow, God, you are so good every time you're faithful. And I think maybe that amazes me because there are times I don't do that. And I do do what my sin nature wants. And I get so frustrated and so... That when I do take that freedom, I'm just like, this is amazing. You really do give it. Why don't I go that path every time? Anyway, but take take your Bibles and turn to First Timothy, chapter four, and we'll close at this. And I have a couple of these here, but um, we're just going to look at this one. Because this seed is also multiplied and it's a blessing to all nations because the seed is Christ and there's something that Christ does in addition to freeing us from the fear of death, freeing us from the dominion of the sin nature and freeing us even from the law that, that prods the sin nature into action. He also tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4 in verse 10 for it is for this then that we labor this he says this is a, a trustworthy statement because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of, what does it say? What? Everyone. Everyone. All men doesn't say well, some guys, a few guys. He's the Savior only of this church, only of a church that operates like this. No. He's the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. In other words, Jesus Christ's work of salvation extends to everybody in the world the only ones that actually really will enjoy that salvation are those that says at the end, those who believe. But the work extends to everybody. All the world, all nations of the world could be blessed. Therefore, Josh and Fay are on the other side of the world to talk to people that don't speak our language, people that, unless I got on an airplane and fly down there like Chris did, I'm probably never going to meet some of these people until we get to heaven, because I trust that some of those people are going to hear the good news through the butlers and the dicks, and they're going to be part of the body of Christ just as much as I am. Just as much as I am. Just as much as you are. He's the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. So all nations of the world are blessed through this seed, Jesus Christ. This singular seed. And when they are all blessed... Ultimately, those people are blessed by the, when they believe and in, come into that one body of Christ, that one seed. You see, this is a promise. This is a covenant that God made with Abraham, but it's a covenant that is not specifically for Israel alone. It is a covenant that you and I also share in. And if you go out of here today remembering something, it should be these two things. Because of this covenant promise that God made to Abraham, he sent a seed, Jesus Christ, of which I am now a part by faith, and I do not need to fear death. And I can actually experience victory rather than living in fear. And I am part of those all men. I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Jew. I'm Scandinavian. I'm German. I'm Irish. (laughs) This is is my background. I'm not Jewish. And yet look at that. I got into this too, into this one body. I'm part of that. All nations of the world, all men will be blessed. I'm part of that because of that. And I think all of you could say that here too. I hope that encourages you a covenant he made. This will be important when we move on to some other covenants eventually that we're going to find that are made more specifically to us. We're going to see that they these then are going to connect. Doesn't those don't add to this, but they're going to things are going to work in tandem. Okay. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together. We're thankful for your word and we're thankful for the promises things that you have given to Abraham that we could easily gloss over and say, well, that's to Abraham. That has nothing to do with us. And yet we find as we continue studying that it does. We are involved in this. We have been promised that we are part of that one seed, your son, Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, our enemies have ultimately been defeated and we do not have to live in fear and we do not have to live in slavery as believers. We can live in freedom knowing that you hold all things, our lives, our, the plans for our future, all of that, you hold that in your hands, and we're thankful for that. Knowing whatever you have in store for us in the remainder of this day, we ask that we might go about those things, do those things in a way where we are looking for opportunities, paying attention, for opportunities to serve others, to be used in their lives, and we would thank you for that wonderful privilege. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention. Have a great day.